This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Since 1964, Police Bank has stood for the financial well-being of police, their families, friends and communities. As it's member-owned, it's able to offer more competitive rates for banking with them. Whatever's next on your horizon, Police Bank can help you get there sooner. Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. For our final episode of this season, we're talking emergency management. Two stories about resilience and staying calm in a crisis for police officers. Inspector Ben McIntyre saved the life of a young man who'd collapsed at home. It's probably a lot of things that made me upset in the cops over the years, but... um... Yeah, this one just uh, it got me straight away, you know. Um, I want to thank you for saving my son and then bang, of you know, tears. And as New South Wales enters a deadly bushfire season, we'll hear what it's like to run emergency responses in times of crisis. Acting Superintendent Hassan El Kanza was recently named the New South Wales Rotary Police Officer of the Year for 2023, recognising his achievements in this space. I first met Hass when I covered an Aston investigation called Strike Force Wiley in season one of our podcast, where the squad brought a prolific suburban firebug to justice. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes. Hass has moved from Arson and now is the manager of the Incident and Emergency Management Command, and he joins me now. Great to have you on the show and congratulations on the award. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Uh, it was obviously a big surprise on the night. There were plenty of very, very worthy nominees uh, up against it. So um, I was, it was it was really nice, actually, to have the family there and to receive that award and, and have all the right people in the room to see it. So it was really nice and um, definitely very humbling. Yeah. As you say, there were so many deserving people who could have got the award. Give us a flavour of the kind of officers that were also nominated and, and their actions. Oh, well, there were officers from, you know, all of the different fields within um, our organisation. And, um, you know, I know in particular our field, Metro Field, there was an officer from the divers some some 30 years as a police diver. And you can imagine the types of things that, you know, our divers see and do, supporting investigations and, and various response operations. So that was a very formidable opponent. Another officer from the, the Transport Command, um, you know, working on the trains, working with all of the things that they have to deal with there. So, you know, just looking at Metro Field alone, which is the category I was in, you know, I was certainly up against it at that point before it turned even to go to the main Police Officer of the Year Awards. Tell us about your current role now. I'm the manager of the Incident and Emergency Management Command. Uh, Our our role here is to support the field, understanding and and working within the emergency management arrangements. As you can probably understand, you know, those arrangements can be quite complex. There's quite a lot of legislation and a lot of uh, multi-agency interactions required. So ensuring that our people are equipped, ready, trained, exercised and available for deployment uh, is a big part of my role. And your career is going in this direction. It's a really important role because no matter what people think of police, when there is a natural disaster or some other issue going on that affects members of the public, they all turn to New South Wales Police and say, fix it. Yeah, you're right. New South Wales Police has a significant role to play in all emergency responses, regardless of whether we are the combat agency or not. And, you know, it's important that our people 
understand their role and, and work well with those other agencies and, you know, quite substantial agencies such as, you know, Fire and Rescue, SES, RFS and, and plenty of others, uh, making sure our people work in well with them so we can deliver the services we all need to as a group for the people in New South Wales. Because you've seen firsthand an environment where which doesn't have the level of sophistication and resources. You went to Turkey for the earthquake early this year, and that must have been an incredible eye-opener and I guess made you grateful for all the great resources that we have in New South Wales. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Turkey was a big eye-opener, um, not only with the, the the magnitude of the devastation that we witnessed, but, but watching their systems operate within that, um, it does make you feel fortunate for... Uh, the arrangements that we have and, and certainly the resources and people and training that, that New South Wales has in particular uh, to respond to such events. It was a, it was a big eye-opener um, and a, bit of, you know, a few lessons learned from that as well. And I'm sure you saw men and women in Turkey who acted as leaders. A good leader in a difficult situation is a priceless asset. What did you see over there? What were the kinds of characters that came to the fore in those tough moments? Probably one of the people I, I, I noticed and, you know, in, in, in the bigger picture of things, you might it might seem like an insignificant role, but one of the interpreters that we had working with our team, so we had a team of interpreters that we we organised almost ad hoc as we were on the ground. And, and this one particular interpreter, he had a good grasp, obviously, of both languages and the local community. And he, he really stood up. He, he made decisions. He, 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 he led the other interpreters and even the transport, you know, the truck drivers and the bus drivers for us and really put in the extra hours. And, it, you know, from, from my memory, it's, it's like he didn't go home. He was there every minute of the day with us and we we're on the ground for 10 full days at Hatay, Turkey. And it's like he didn't go home. He stood up. He, he, he was heavily involved in the meetings and the decision making around where people would go and where buses should go and even the transport routes. He stepped up well beyond um, his role as an interpreter. So he was a pretty impressive, impressive person and, and someone who was integral to the success of our um, deployment. Yes. And you are one of a handful in New South Wales that has urban search and rescue accreditation. And that meant you were the only New South Wales police officer to go to Turkey. How did that happen? My role is the security liaison for that team. So I have some training in relation to, you know, deployment within the, the pile or the rubble, but primarily my role is around making sure that the team is safe pre and during deployment. So it's about identifying the risks, managing the risks, mitigating the risks, hopefully removing some of the risks and um, and making sure that that team is able to go about their business and not worry about external influences. You have a dedicated person as part of the incident management team to look after that on everyone else's behalf. That was my role as the police officer in the team. Because you're dealing in those situations with unfolding horror terror, despair, how does the police officer continue to stay calm, stay organised in the face of such emotional torment, if you like, for, for most people? I think there's a human component to this. I think some people are just born or built resilient. Others um, need to practise it, perhaps. Um, I think I'm fortunate in, I think, naturally, I don't get 
overwhelmed too easily, but it's but it's certainly the 25 odd years of previous policing in, in a range of roles with you know a range of pressures I think make you a little bit more match fit to deal with a situation like that. You know, working in a place in the past like the Homicide Squad, it's every single day. So, you know, where Turkey's just a short-term deployment, you work at somewhere like the Homicide Squad, you see those sorts of things daily and at worst weekly. So there's a level of match fitness to it as well. But one of the key aspects of a leader is when the leader realises he himself needs assistance. Have you ever been in that position where you realise... I need to reach out to someone here. Yeah, I think we all do um, the longer our careers go on and, you know, from, you know, right up to the higher level support services an agency like ours has available to it, you know, to just simply speaking to a trusted colleague and everything in between. So I'm fortunate I haven't had had to call upon the, the more significant support resources, but, but certainly within my team um, and on occasions my commanders um, have been commanders and managers have been really good supports for me as I'm managing, you know, substantial workloads or pressures and, and no, no more than, you know, when we were, you know, investigating this significant carnage on the south coast. Hassan is referring to the deadly bushfire season experienced in 2019 and 2020. My manager at the time was particularly supportive of what me and the team were doing. And, um, you know, I can say it was a, it was integral to the success of, you know, the health of the team as we work through that process. At a certain level, do you have to say to yourself, I've signed on for this, this is my job, people are expecting me to perform and to put aside some of those issues at least till later on? I think I think everyone's different. That's a hard one to answer because everyone looks at things slightly differently. I think once you're in an organisation for a period of time, there's an expectation that you put on yourself to behave a certain way. But but it is a very personal sort of response to that question. I can say from my point of view, I certainly do feel a sense of obligation to the organisation and when things are faced to just get in and get the job done. So that's from a personal point of view, I can, I can definitely agree with what you just said there. Yeah, because I've spoken to a few people who've worked with you over the years in various roles, New South Wales Police, and they all say... I would work for Hassan. I would go back and work for him tomorrow. It's nice to hear. What qualities do you want to project as a police officer but also a leader with the New South Wales Police Force? Well, that's really nice to hear that. <laughs> Firstly, I think what's important is when you're in charge, take charge. So if you're in a position of responsibility, own that responsibility and, and take charge of the situation you are supposed to. But, but but more so than that, I think, is you you should be able to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So it's it's very easy to sometimes hide behind a clipboard and point fingers but not get out there actually with the people you're working with or who are working for you and do some of the hard slog with them. Now, I accept that the higher you go up the chain, that distance increases, but I've always been, a, a you know, a big advocate for getting in there, being part of it, doing things with the team, not being above um, doing some of the more um, challenging tasks within within the, the operation or the strike force or whatever we might be doing. So I think that sets a good example for the people around you and gives you credibility to work with them and then above them in um, whatever you're undertaking then and next. I guess the problem with emergency management is that you're only as good as your next crisis. 
And we've got the bushfire season coming up in New South Wales. It's going to be a terrible one if the weather predictions are correct. Are you conscious of the looming challenge you face just in the next couple of months? Yeah, we are. Uh, We're definitely aware of that. Um, The thing about bushfires is that you do know to a degree that they're coming. It's not a surprise. You see the weather predictions, you see the the curing rates, the dryness, the um, fuel loads. So you can sort of prep yourself up for it. Yes, of course, on occasions, you know, the, a bushfire pops up in an area that, you know, we weren't, wasn't quite expected. But with bushfires, you, you know, you don't get bushfires in the middle of winter during rain. So we can somewhat prepare. And But I can say this, the RFS is a impressive operation. And um, having worked with them last week, as things started to blow up last week, um, what I witnessed in there at their state operations centre is is quite impressive. So it gives me a lot of confidence in my role that they are they are ready to go and they are executing their functions very well. Are you conscious of how you project a state of readiness, professionalism and preparedness as people go into this season where they stand to lose everything possibly and even their lives? Yeah, I think that's that's a responsibility that you know all of us emergency services organizations have in our particular patch. As you would know, there are, there are combat agencies for different functions and different emergencies across our state. And, you know, having been involved in, in some of the meetings um, at that level with, with some of the, the senior management of all of those organisations, I can say that everyone is taking their job seriously and that everyone is prepared to look after um, those responses for what they're responsible for. And the police, as in some ways a coordinating agency across that, network is certainly ready and prepared to to respond to what we need to. Because you're an arson specialist in a sense because you worked for all that time at the arson squad and that's how we first met and part of what the arson squad did during uh, bushfire seasons is Strike Force Tronto which looks at recidivist firelighters and how to control their movements and be aware of what they're doing during critical moments or indeed in investigations after terrible fire events. Yeah, so Strike Force Tronto is a 12-month Strike Force now. It's not just uh, on occasions. It is available and ready at all points of the year um, for arson investigation or fire investigation response uh, when it's of a bushfire nature. There are a range of functions that Strike Force Tronto has, uh, which is currently managed by the arson unit, my, my former my former unit, and they do a good job, you know, identifying risks, responding to investigations, getting on the ground early um, to support the PACs and PDs with their investigations and, um, and, and you know, just minimising that threat of a bushfire lighter. It's, it's not a perfect science, of course, you know, there are a lot of people in New South Wales and, and a very, very small number of them might want to do the wrong thing, but, but I'm confident the arson unit and Strike Force Toronto are doing a good job good job working with the PACs and PDs to identify those doing wrong and wrapping some investigations around them should it require. So you're laying your plans for the summer now? What's going on? Well, it started. So the plans were in place, continue to be rolled out, and um, we are continuing to work with the RFS um, to support their needs. We have had police liaison officers working out of the RFS State Operations Centre for several weeks now and that amps up on the more intense days. We are given notice in advance of a, you know, a, a bad weather day or a period of days of which um, we're required to respond and we have police liaison officers available, support staff, 
and, you know, the, the entire back end of New South Wales police emergency management arrangements through the EACON network to, um, to support the RFS in their role. I think it was Mike Tyson who said that uh, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think a fire season is like that. It can, it can serve up the most horrendous challenges, completely un- unprecedented, particularly as we go into this drying phase, global warming being a big issue. This is only going to get worse, and this will mark, might I say, the back end of your career. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting what you said about the, the Mike Tyson quote. Um, the quote is right to a degree, you know, in that there are surprises out there, but you have to have a plan, you know. And the plans allow us to, you know, move forward, have a system, have an operating system to respond to known challenges. But you also have to be, as you said, nimble. You've got to be nimble. You've got to be able to react to changes in the environment, changes in the emergency or disaster type of which, um, you know, the emergency services organisations in our state most definitely do. They have good relationships and good networks. And, you know, let's face it, we are match fit on reacting. We react to things all the time. That is the emergency services environment. Things happen, we react. We put the systems in place to deal with what is in front of us. What advice would you give to people now about preparing for what's coming, for what you're seeing in the weather patterns and what we may see in the coming couple of months? There were some media statements uh, a few weeks back by the Commissioner of RFS and he, he put it quite well. Uh, in relation to preparing yourselves for the upcoming season. We've known about this upcoming season for some time, that it's going to have its challenges. It's about preparing your home, staying across the information sources on the RFS website, the fires near me, the related apps, having a, uh, a bushfire safety plan within your own home and having a plan internally within your family or workplace to move, get out, bunker down or whatever the directions of the RFS are at the time. But it is about having a plan. It's about thinking about it, communicating it within your network and putting physical systems in place to keep yourself safe, whether that's packing an overnight bag, whether that's having, um, you know, if you're in a bushfire prone area, having, a, you know, a bag or box or, or items of value to you available to take with you should you need to move. Now, I accept that that's not in all cases, you know, in some of the built up urban areas, that risk is significantly diminished. But those in those more risky areas do know that they're in those risky areas. And there's there's plenty of information sources out there via the RFS to get that information and get that support to put a bushfire survival plan in place. You're regarded as a leader of the force, one of tomorrow's top leaders, I believe. What are the influences that have guided you and helped you form your principles around what makes Hassan Elkanza an effective police officer? I remember in at the academy and certainly in your pro, you get the advice and they say to you, there'll be some people you work with, you'll like what they do, there are others you don't. Take the bits and pieces from the different people that you like and you like the way they operate and, you know, concoct your own soup of who you are. And um, I couldn't agree with that more. And still today, I'm still taking advice and I'm watching people above me and beside me. And you know what? Even below me, um, the good things they do, the advice they provide, the good traits, and you just continue to mix that soup together of what you are. And and I think that's really, really important. And I'm lucky um, working where I've worked. I've worked with some amazing people. And I've certainly taken big chunks of their their traits and, and, and you know, formulated that into what, what I am today. 
Well, it's fantastic. It's been great to make your acquaintance. And uh, I knew you were a standout when we did that story back in the day on Strike Force Wiley. And I'm so pleased to see you've risen from detective sergeant to currently acting superintendent. Who knows what the limit is now? Wait and see. <laughs> it's been an interesting ride and a very humbling ride so far as well. <laughs> so um, I said it the other night in, in the, you know, the, the awards speech, you know, the whole, uh, I'm in 25 years, but there's still 20 to go. So I'm only halfway done. So um, there's a bit more to go yet. And thank you for your service. Really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Adam. That was Acting Superintendent Hassan Elkanza, the Rotary New South Wales Police Officer of the Year for 2023. In a moment, another award-winning New South Wales cop who saved a life. That's after these messages from our valued sponsors. Reach your saving goals faster with the Police Bank Bonus Saver account. If your goal is to save and be rewarded with bonus interest, then the Police Bank Bonus Saver account could be for you. You'll just need to deposit $100 each month with no withdrawals and there are no ongoing monthly or annual fees or minimum or maximum balances. Eligibility criteria applies. Please see the terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales police force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop or further your policing career? We can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more. Welcome back to this special awards episode. You must hold a current first aid certificate to join the New South Wales Police Force. And to remain on active duty requires members to have mandatory first aid and CPR training every year of service. This continuous training literally saves lives, a point underscored when 11 New South Wales police officers received commendations from the Royal Lifesaving Society of New South Wales in 2023. The officers were at risk not only from biological hazards, but environmental ones, including in water rescues and vehicle fires. Most of these actions resulted in a life saved. One of the officers commended this year was Inspector Ben McIntyre of the Fairfield Police Area Command. In 2021, Inspector McIntyre was on duty and patrolling alone when reports came through of a 17-year-old boy who had collapsed at home less than a kilometre away. Inspector McIntyre rushed to the location and began CPR until the arrival of the paramedics. The teenager went on to make a full recovery and medical professionals revealed that without Inspector McIntyre's actions, the outcome may have been very different. I'm joined now by Ben McIntyre. Good afternoon, Ben. Yeah, good afternoon, Adam. Tell me, just being there at the right place at the right time or having the training or a combination of both? Yeah, probably a combination of both, to be honest. When the address uh, came over the police radio, I was able to punch it into my phone and uh, realised I was only about 900 metres away. So I was able to get there very, very quickly, probably front run the ambulance by a a good uh, probably four or five minutes. But yeah, the training, running into a situation like that, you're expected to be the 
the saviour, the sort of person that knows what to do in these situations. But um, having that background and that knowledge and, you know, 22 years of doing it over and over again at training courses uh, gave me the confidence to go in and, and take charge of that. So how many such uh, CPR situations have you been involved with over your career? Quite a few, to be honest, and there was probably um, there was one probably three or four weeks before this one. Not all of them are overly successful because it depends how long they've been, you know, without the oxygen and without the life going around their body. So it is quite difficult. So speed to get into the situation is is probably the the main key, and whether you can get someone someone back. To be honest, I couldn't put a figure on how many I've done over the years. I've worked in Western Sydney all, all my career, so. Tell me about this 17-year-old boy. What was his condition? Yeah, so when I went into the house, I, I ran to the bathroom, uh, sort of at the, the rear of the house, and he was on the floor. Um, his dad had managed to get his legs out of the shower and uh, was on the phone at Triple O while trying to um, sort of get to check his, his vitals. Uh, when I looked down at him, I could see his lips were blue. Uh, I could see that there definitely was no breathing, rising and falling of the chest. He was a very fit young man, so you could see like his chest was not moving. I picked up and sort of communicated with the dad, uh, we need to get him out somewhere where we can uh, work on him. Uh, when I got him into the lounge room, that's when I checked his, uh, his pulse at the side of his neck and there was definitely nothing there. Um, and we uh, got into some CPR following that. And you do the training, but when it comes to a real-life situation... What goes through your mind? Uh, the, the first thing you have to sort of think of when you get to these situations is it's a rush situation, but you've got to pause and take that time to think where is the best place uh, and how am I going to get the best outcome in this situation. So obviously in the shower cubicle, was not going to bring bring about that. So that's why I made the decision to, to pick him up and move him. Now that might not seem like the best thing to do, especially to, you know, a, a parent who's watching their child lay there lifeless. And um, But, yeah, it's just to taking control of the situation, have the, the situational awareness and calmness to make those decisions that are ultimately going to be, um, you know, conducive to, to getting someone back. So we got to the lounge room, uh, put him down, checked the vitals, obviously, and then um, jumped straight into compressions uh, following that. So generally, the and one thing that has happened in most of the times I've done CPR is the first thing you'll hear is the the, um, the chest cartilage um, will break or make a sound. Um, it's not the nicest thing in the world to hear, but it managed to get the compressions going. And you can see they're effective trying to go that uh, third of the depth of the chest, and it, it quite literally is just get into the rhythm of doing the compressions, make sure that blood-rich oxygen that was going around his body is making its way to its vital organs. So what happened next? So I kept going for about two minutes. I had uh, the father call out 30-second intervals on his mobile phone for me just so I had an awareness of how long I was doing it for and also note down the time which I started the compressions. I think the next uh, car that arrived would have been one of my police vehicles. Um, I had them uh, just escort the parents out in case it wasn't a such a good situation and I kept going as I said it was probably three or four minutes by this stage when the paramedics arrived when the paramedics arrived that's a uh, that was a relief for me as well because you know I, I can do CPR I can't do all the other medical stuff that's required to sustain life so when um, when the paramedics arrived they set up at, at, at his head and were about to sort of start the breaths and he sort of come to and sort of took like a, an almighty breath and I, I sort of stopped and took my hands off and 
uh, looked over at the paramedics because that, like that, <laughs> that was it for me. Like, oh, I, I don't know what to do from here. He's breathing again, you know, recovery position and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, as soon as he did that, he went back into cardiac arrest again. So again, started the, the compressions um, and then I was just working in unison with our, our brothers and sisters in the ambulance then to, to get him back. And eventually we got him back. I, I stopped compressions and we got a, a very weak pulse back. Um, at this stage, the fireys had arrived as well. So while all this is occurring, I um, was arranging a, a green light corridor, which is basically green light run to the hospital. So I arranged all my local highway patrol cars to get out there and, um, and start arranging a, a green light corridor to Liverpool Hospital. So it was, as I said, it was just a situation where like I was close enough uh, to be able to sustain that oxygen-rich blood going around his body for then the medical professionals, the ambulance to come, and then we, we got him to the hospital very, very quickly. You're a consummate professional, but you're also a family man. you got kids? Yeah, yeah, three kids. Um, one that is exactly the same age, uh, the young man who I did CPR on. And you saw the young man's father experiencing the roller coaster of this moment, this near-death experience, that would form a bond, I think. Uh, yeah, it, it did, um, and mainly with, um, or with the whole family, of course, but uh, mainly with uh, the mum, uh, to be honest. Um, I think Dad, massive gentleman, huge, just like his son, um, found out that he had a, a, defect, a defect in his heart that has now been rectified. He's got one of those ICD things put in his heart uh, to stop the reoccurrence again. But it was just, um, for a long time there, it was just they could not explain it. He was in and out of hospital for months. You gave him a chance though? Yeah, no, definitely, uh, as I said, just close enough to be able to give that chance to him um, and, and have the knowledge and skills available. Like every police officer here at Fairfield, uh, had, it, had it been that close or any police officer across New South Wales having been that close would have been able to give the same opportunity of life that I gave. Yeah, it's amazing. But the family would obviously be so connected to you now after what's happened and for you this would probably be a moment you'll cherish on those bad days that obviously come in policing, days where you can't save people. So how do you reflect on this incident in that way? Yeah, well, it's taken uh, sort of 22 years to get to the sort of an incident where I've been able to make that it will be lifelong connection with the family. Like I've dealt with many victims over the years, which I've, I've maintained a bond for you know a short period of time during court process and maybe a short time after that. But uh, this one immediately made that connection. I could see myself as um, exactly like them, being you know hardworking family people. Yeah, just I could see the strain that it had caused with the family. And obviously I could see sort of the, the mental health of both the parents there and I thought I could I could assist with my experience in, in the police and be able to help guide them through not only the incident on the night but also recovery um, back to, you know, being able to be a family again. The phone call I got from uh, the mother uh, uh, the, the next night after the incident was something I'll remember for the rest of my life. It's probably a lot of things that made me ups, upset in the cops over the years, but, yeah, this one just uh, it got me straight away, you know. Um, I want to thank you for saving my son and then, bang, I've, you know, tears. <laughs> Your family must be so proud of you. Yeah, no, and just trying to explain to the, the kids, because I've got a, a, a quite a, a spread of children, like 7, uh, 12 and 17, so being able to explain that I'd, I'd uh, been able to give this, this boy an opportunity to continue on his life, 
we speak about it often, especially most recently with the award and then seeing me on Facebook and, you know, all the other bits and pieces. But um, not only that, but be able to show uh, I've got a boy as well that's age 12, plays football, same as um, this young man, the 17-year-old did as well, and been able to show him photos of um, him playing Oztag nowadays. Um, he can't play full contact sport. But, yeah, just that, that connection that we've been able to make. As I said, the similarities between uh, my family and, and the family of this, this young man is, is incredible and I'll um, cherish the, the relationship for the rest of my life. You've put on the uniform, you get paid to do what you do, but there's a lesson in here for all of us as we go into the summer months that the value of having a first aid certificate and keeping it current couldn't be better you know, underscored than in this incident. Oh, no, exactly right. And as I, I, I sort of keep touching on that point is the, the speed at which I was able to get there is the same speed at which your neighbour or your friend or someone down the street or someone who lives very close could get to you and, and render that that assistance to you to give you your, your best chance at, at survival, you know. And having young children in this day and age, I would strongly encourage uh, a, go and get your, your first aid certificate inclusive of CPR, but also speak to your neighbours as well. See if you can go and do it as a, as a community group so you know who's got what and who can help. We'll always come running, of course, the police, the fireys and the ambos, but oh, your neighbour will be the one that's closest to you. Well done. And thank you once again. It's a brilliant story and uh, um, thanks for being on the podcast, but most importantly, thank you for your service and, and I hope the connection with the family continues that also someone listening to this podcast will also take seriously your experience. You know what? I might even get my own certificate updated, do a bit of refresher, I think. It's well worth it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Adam, and thank you for the opportunity. And um, yeah, no, big fan of your, your shows. I, I watch them all the time, especially Australian crime stories. <laughs> oh, that's a nice little plug there. Appreciate that. That was Inspector Ben McIntyre from the Fairfield Police Command. This has been the final episode for Season 2. If you've yet to do so, check out Season 1, where we cover cold cases, mysteries, notorious homicides and intricate strike forces from the New South Wales Police Force. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming service if you've enjoyed this season. I'm your host, Adam Shand, and this has been a real crime podcast for the New South Wales Police Force. Remember, if you want to report a crime, please call Crime Stoppers on one 800 333 000. Thanks for listening. Inside the New South Wales Police Force is a Real Crime Australia production in association with the New South Wales Police Force. The host producer is Adam Shand. Editing and imaging by Matt Dwyer. For New South Wales Police, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Senior Constable Ashley Bold and Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank inside New South Wales Police. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales Police Force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop? or further your policing career, we can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more.